All opinions expressed by Davidson Capital Management on MoneyWise are solely theirs and are based upon information they consider reliable and is subject to change without notice. You should be aware of the risk in investing in any security or investment strategy discussed on the show. Before acting, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and should seek advice from your own financial or investment advisor. Past performance is not indicative of future results. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Got your Money Wise guys back inside the Money Wise studio with me for this weekend show. I have my brother Jeff, Joe Rust, and I am your host, Kyle Davidson. For any new listeners to the Money Wise program, Davidson Capital Management is a fee-only registered investment advisor. We're in our 34th year of business, and with offices in San Antonio and Corpus Christi, we have your investment management needs covered throughout Central and South Texas. And if you'd like to learn more about us, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the MoneyWise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. Well, as we kick off every weekend's MoneyWise program, I turn, I turn it over to my brother, Jeff, to go into the numbers from Wall Street from last week. So, Jeff, take it away. Okay, in the week just passed, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was up about 114 points or three-tenths of 1%. The S&P 500 last week was up about 16.5 points, or four-tenths of 1%. And the NASDAQ last week was up a little over 18 points, or one-tenth of 1%. Now, for the year to date, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is up 2.2%. The S&P 500 year-to-date is up 12%. And the NASDAQ year-to-date is up 26.7%. Thank you, Jeff. You're welcome. So... This week on Wall Street, you know, going back to not this past Friday, but the previous Friday, uh, we had that very nice rally attack of the Fridays as we have been having in the, over the last couple of years. But going into Monday this past week, I, I, I felt as if we started to see a little bit of a sentiment shift of investors where we've been seeing some profit taking from these high flying tech names. You know, a lot of these seven to 10 stocks that have been driving over 90% of the S&P 500's gains so far year to date, we're starting to see some other undervalued areas like the Russell 2000, which is primarily focused in the small cap asset class, and even the value side of the market finally starting to catch some bids or, or starting to be bought by investors, but it seems that this past week, as I felt that we we're starting to finally get a sentiment shift and getting a wider breath in the market, it seems that we've kind of fallen back to this, well, the NASDAQ's leading once again, and we saw some sell-off of both value and small caps, uh, you know, give and take this past week. And so I guess the big $64,000 question, and it's a conversation I had with a with a friend of mine who's a portfolio manager up here in San Antonio, is when are we going to get the rest of the market to participate in the movements to the upside that we've seen so far year-to-date in those handful of tech stocks? Well, I think the Fed has to get out of the way first. Or the market, well, has, to be, the market has to be convinced that the Fed is, is out of the way. 
And I don't think we're necessarily going to get that kind of indication with next week's meeting. Uh, it seems now every yeah, the consensus from the talking heads, including these talking heads, on, <laughs> Our here, talking on heads. <laughs> here, here on the Money Wise program, that the Federal Reserve will pause next week. And we were talking, we, we, we had a little bit of fun and decided you know, amongst those, what will we, what will we describe the message next, next week when the, when Federal Reserve uh, Governor speaks uh, an hour, you know, I said it's going to be a hawkish pause. And I think Kyle said the same. I, I agree. Don't, I don't remember what you said, Joe. <clears throat> Oh, I said skip. I said skip. I just threw out the skip. skip. What's the okay. difference between skip and pause? I mean, really, definitive. Well, a, a skip a skip implies that they're going to be raising rates in July at their next meeting, whereas a pause okay. is they're going to be pausing, talking, talking very hawkishly. Meaning, as Jeff, as you just said, they're not going to be taking themselves out of the picture by any stretch of the imagination in the press conference that's going to be held uh, Wednesday afternoon. And so well, they're not going to be taking themselves out of the picture. Joe, when you say a skip, it just implies they're going to skip and they're going to be leaving it well on the table that they are well, going to be raising I, rates I, again saying, in July. I'm saying you could say pause and they wait a month and then they raise. Yeah, and I would skip. say a skip and a pause is the same thing. The hawkish part is is more about what, what, what they say in the press conference. Hawkish pause. I like that. So they're going to have to be The language, the language will, will, get, will, will be a, a more skewed towards – we we may resume if the data says that we need to resume. Uh, so that's why I'm, I'm calling it a hawkish pause. Yes, Joe. Well, one of the things I'm, I'm just looking at a chart in last Friday is uh, for the first part of the year, uh, or 2023 RSP, which is a equally weighted ETF, to Kyle's point, everybody else's point, it's up uh, about 2.7 for the year. It's right almost even with the Dow. And so – the question is, what is the rest of the market, which would roughly be, I would say, the, some, somewhat the equivalent of the, the equally weighted S&P. If we get those numbers next week, are we going to see that rotation back to uh, some of these stocks that Kyle's talking about that have got a bid? You know? Well, and- with it, with us really only a handful of weeks away from a new quarter, you know, gonna, then we'll have earnings. So a month from now, we're going to have a, a new set of quarterly earnings. They'll start to be. They'll start to come out. It won't be until the end of July until we get to the big high flyers. Uh, how much money is necessarily going to be committed to the market this late in the quarter, even with the Federal Reserve pausing for the first time in I think fifteen months? This would be the first pause and. Because they've, they've raised it every meeting, if I'm not Started, mistaken. They began, they started raising rates, I believe, March of 22. Right. But Kyle said something to me on Friday that I have not heard about a, a new target for the federal funds rate. That I, haven't, I mean, I haven't heard anybody mention this, but where did you hear this? Reading it. I've been reading in a lot of different uh, research reports, like I do every single morning, my my mechanized routine that I've been following for I don't know how many decades. But the bottom line is, is that they're now starting to talk about, they're starting to talk about the Fed target being at six, at 6%. And right now, the federal funds rate is between five and five and a quarter, which would imply that we could be seeing three more, three additional 25 basis point or a quarter 1% increases before they're finally done. 
that's just what they've been hearing from some internal discussions between Fed governors. They've talked a little bit about it in the financial entertainment press, but more research analysts, they're starting to talk amongst their inner circles that this is really where the Fed wants to go. Um, I don't the, think but, that that's really being talked about in the mass media because if that was really the consensus, I would think the market might be su- might be suffering, you know, a little a little bit of anxiety over that. Well, and the market's got to believe, you know, they have to believe the rumors. But let's pause right there. Let's take our first commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at one 800 275 if you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the MoneyWise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. Or if you're just tuning in this weekend's MoneyWise program, continuing to recap the happenings of Wall Street this past week. And before we went to break, talking about some rumblings that I've been reading and, and hearing a little bit about about the Fed kind of in their inner circles of conversations, you know, possibly wanting to take the federal funds rate to a 6% rate, which is about three-quarters of 1%, roughly higher from where they are right now, which could imply three more potential interest rate increases. I think we're all in agreement that this meeting that's coming next, this coming Wednesday, they're going to be pausing, but they're definitely going to be talking tough. Uh, that they could very easily raise rates again in July. And it's all going to be data-dependent, as most Fed decisions are. But it's really going to come down to the Consumer Price Index, which that is going to be coming out on June the 13th. And then the Producer Price Index will be coming out on the 14th, the actual day of the Fed decision and the press conference following that. So a lot of information. And I know we jokingly kind of tongue-in-cheek say that this is the most – consequential CPI, PPI, and Fed decision of the year. It seems like it's it's like that each and every single time we have these it, meetings and this data comes out every month from inflation. Gotcha. It, it's the Super Bowl, remember. It's yeah, Super it's the Super Bowl. It's the Super Bowl of all numbers. It's every month there's a new Super Bowl. I'm the sure. guy on the show. It's the Super Bowl. I'll just throw out, you know. And I'm sure his dad's listening to this. His face is beat red from, from anger, the fact that we jumped right into talking about the Fed. But since earnings are out of the way until we get into next month and get into the new quarter, this is really the big market-moving news. Although I will say this past week, some of the news that came out as far as the market is that we finally had the S&P 500 close above and stay above two days in a row a 20% retracement from its October 2022 lows, which in some circles would notate the beginning of a new bull market. Now, other analysts, other market professionals say that you don't have a new bull market until you've completely recovered back and above the all-time highs. But a lot of other circles of analysts say if you have a 20% move off of the bottom from the lows, 
it's a new bull market. Now, I want to ask you this, Jeff, because I know amongst the three of us, you're probably the most bearish. Um, you're not wearing a full bear suit like Dad is, but you know you are the most bearish. Would you say or would you confirm that you feel that the lows of this market cycle were put in October of last year at this point in time? Putting them on the spot. As I, well, as, I as have put them on the spot. As I have told many clients during you know, phone conversations and face-to-face meetings, presentations, the, the further and further out in terms of days, time, that we get from that low, the, the lower the probability that we will test that low and or go below it. So every day, every week, every month that goes by, uh, I become less concerned about that occurrence. And therefore, with that being said, I'm, I'm, I'm in essence becoming less and less bearish. Now, bearish doesn't mean for our listeners that, that uh, I believe we should be 0% stocks. That's not what bearish means. Bearish means a, a percentage below what we would typically have as a maximum allocation to stocks. And so at the most bearish, um, I would be 50% below our maximum asset allocation of stocks in a moderate asset allocation portfolio. So if we say a moderate asset allocation portfolio should have 60% invested in stocks in this environment, this interest rate environment, that would mean that I would have 30% in a portfolio in stocks. I'd be 50% below that would be that would be my maximum bearishness, which we've all talked about is exactly where we were, say in 08. Mm-hmm. at the heights of the financial crisis. We were rounded off about 30% invested in stocks. At one time in March of 2020, like in the first or second week of March, we were in and around 30% invested in stocks again. Last year, in and around the heights of the, where well, we got in and around that low that we talked about in September. If you look at our asset allocations, we were in and around 30%. I think it was like 33, 34. So right now we're, what, 44 and change thereabouts because we've had some appreciation this year. Had some appreciation. We'll call it it 45. Um, And we're talking about, uh, we were talking about just before we went on air, uh, potentially going to 50% invested in stocks, basically 50-50. Uh, if the uh, if, I think it's going to be a favorable CPI PPI numbers next week and a not super hawkish comment from the Federal Reserve, uh, but we're not going to sixty percent invested in stocks next week. Uh, but fifty percent might be on the table. That's about five, a little more than five percent more invested than we are now. We may change the mix a little bit in the portfolio. This year, unlike last year, uh, last year that our exchange-traded funds did better than our individual stocks, and this year it's the exact opposite. Our individual stocks are doing better than our exchange-traded funds. Far better. <laughs> but our our philosophy in the mix between exchange-traded funds and individual stocks, and correct me if I'm remembering this wrong, but mm. – my recollection, especially over the last 15-plus years, has tended to be 
that we're more invested in exchange-traded funds in, time, in periods of when the market is stressed and when the, when the market seems to be get heading out of a stressful period, we're starting to become more invested in stocks, individual stocks, and less invested in ETFs. Is that a well, fair? Is that I right? mean, it's 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 a fair assessment. But but as we educate any you know prospective client, any current client, you know we all every single one of our portfolios, no matter what the allocation model, we always use. We always have an index base in the portfolio on the equity side and index ETFs, and we can use them. Uh, and we, we use them as a potential ejection seat, meaning we need to get a big chunk of money out of the market very quickly, or we can also use them to throw a blanket over the market as the market starts to rise. And so it's a very quick and easy way to remove and deploy assets. And so that's why every one of our equity portfolios is built on the foundation of an indexed ETF base. Yeah, one of the, and one of the things when you we talk about the ETF base and the portfolio and using it during certain market periods and, and especially when things are pretty volatile, index, especially ETFs that are typically going to be an index, we don't use a lot of, you know, it's going to be an index ETF. There's not a lot of emotion to owning the spies or the diamonds or the cues. If you have to sell that, okay, we can live with it. But the amount of research we we take and and put into every individual stock, and Kyle's our main analyst when it comes to individual stocks, you know, and then we have input too. There's a tremendous amount of work that goes into every particular stock that we own. And we own about 40 stocks right now in the portfolio. I know over time we've owned more than that, but it, it takes a lot more research and a lot more discipline and to, to pick the best in class and go into each particular sector and do that research. But, Anyway. They're kind of they're kind of like your babies. They're the, you know you've spent hours upon hours in each one of these individual stocks to actually select them, and then the and then the continuous vetting, even after you buy them, of why you're wanting to continue to own them. So you're absolutely right. The the index base on the ETFs, uh, it, it just there's no emotion involved. It's either you yank it out or you put it in. You don't have to to spend as much time. Uh, doing the analytical work, it's more of just a a measure of allocation. You know, how much do I want allocated into it? And so, you know, as far as Jeff was saying, you know, going to 50% for our individual stock and bond portfolios, that's increasing stock allocation to the individual names because we've been following a stair-step approach that we've talked about on this show all year as earnings reports have been coming out, and there's still a handful of stocks out of our 40 that we haven't taken the first step up because the regional banking issues that reared their ugly head in March kept us and held us back from doing the first step up in some of those names. And again, we're owning all of our individual stocks in an equally weighted fashion as opposed to doing any kind of overweighting or underweighting uh, as far as this year is concerned. And from the analysis I've done, equally weighted, in my opinion, is a more logical route to go. And, you know, and as we've talked on this program, we'll do some profit-taking here and there as these particular – and, again, we do own four of the seven big-cap tech names that have been really driving a lot of their turn in this market and that we have been peeling profits off throughout the year in these names because, as we always say, you never go broke taking a profit. Let's take our next commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Money Wise, guys, will be back after this. 
Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at one 800 275 2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the Moneywise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. Well, as I mentioned earlier on this program, that this past week, the S&P 500 has finally had a full 20% retracement to the upside from its October low point, but what I still find so amazing looking at volume, and as we know, we talk about volume here on the Money Wise program, just still not seeing as much commitment of volume above the daily moving average, which tells me we still have a lot of retail investors, a lot of long-term asset managers like us at Davidson Capital Management still sitting on plenty of dry powder, sitting in money markets, sitting in higher interest rate fixed income. And I ran across a a research report that was just showing asset flows into equity mutual funds, equity exchange-traded funds, and we're just still seeing these net negative asset flows. And so I guess the big question is, what is it going to take to finally turn this around to get the retail investors interested again and putting some money to work long-term in some, there's some great companies, great stocks that are fundamentally sound, that are at tremendous values that are out there. But what I'm looking at, I sent you guys the research report, just the net negative outflows across the board on the equity side of the market, it's really just a head-scratcher now that the S&P 500 has had a 20%-plus retracement from its low in October. I, I, I got I a I quick comment on that and i would love to see a little bit more analysis on it because we talk about this we talk about cash management and having a position traded money market account if people know they go their schwab account their fidelity account and get 4.5 or 4.9 percent on a on a on a seven day on on their money market account that could be part of the 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 situation people like why am i going to take all the risk when i can get four and a half to five percent of money market account and, you know, and obviously they're buying those seven to 10 stocks, but that would take more research, but it'd be interesting to see. I mean, there's a so, of, so, anyway. so you're saying that they would much rather just take four and a half to five, maybe 5.1% of position traded money market account with zero risk versus the potential risk that lays, that always lays out there in the market. People are not yeah, hurry to buy the S&P and go ahead. All right. So. My first comment to that is how many people in their 401k can actually buy a cash instrument that yields that? That I don't None. know. Nil. I would say nil. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, if they if they have a self-directed uh brokerage account, maybe they can buy one there. I don't know, but if you're just if if you're just in a standard 401k, your cash options are the sta- the stable value. Stable value. It's it's not the best you're going to do because stable value funds are not available outside the 401k world. And I don't know what stable value funds are yielding right now. I doubt they're yielding uh, what a position-traded money market fund is, which you would have access to at a brokerage house. So that would be the first thing. 
The other thing is most of them, if they're, again, in a 401K, they can't buy those seven stocks individually. They're forced to own mutual funds uh, unless they have a self-directed option again. And then maybe they can buy stocks. Maybe they can buy exchange-traded funds. Uh, The other thing is how many people – how many people's retirement planning, how many people did their retirement plan with an expected rate of return of 4.5%? Five, you know, I, I Probably don't, I don't not know. many. That would be many. more of a withdrawal rate. That would be more of a yeah. withdrawal rate. So if, you, if, you're, if you're getting too super bearish, and let's say you do have access to an investment instrument inside your 401K or inside – the self-directed part of your 401k, if it offers it, that you can get 4.5%, you may be missing an opportunity if you're stuck there. Because typically what happens is investors get bullish in and around the bottom. They go total cash. You mean bearish. They get bearish in and around the bottom. In and around the bottom. You said bullish. They sell low by high. Thank you. So, so they get bearish and around, really super bearish and around the bottom, and they go totally out, which we've said for 18-plus years, it is the wrong yeah. thing to do. And then they don't get back in. They're still sitting out, and then, oh, well, I, I just, you know, I got out during COVID, and, boy, did I make a mistake. You know, now two years later, they're, they're still out of the market, right? Mm-hmm. So that's the other thing. Is, is just accepting that return in your retirement account, e- even if you can get it, I don't think you can, Mm-mm. it's probably going to hurt you uh, hurt you longer term. It, it appears that the market is, is beginning to set itself up for a new, a new bull run. Remember now, you get out a chart of the S&P 500 and you take, you just draw a line from, you know, from this, in this case, right to left, that goes back in time, and you're going to see that the market today is trading about where it was a couple of years ago. So the markets have done virtually nothing for two years. We've been in this trading range, and we've seen these types of trading ranges in the past. We've seen them go on a lot longer than two years. Eventually, the market gets out of its, of its trading range. And as Kyle said, so what is it going to take you know, for the market to get get above this number we're at now and stay there. But it, to me, it begins with the Federal Reserve getting out of the decision, getting out of the equation when it comes to the investment decision making process. Because we, you got all these variables, right? And for a long time, the Federal Reserve was not one of those variables because we had near zero interest interest rate policy. Mm-hmm. They were a non factor. And they were doing quantitative, and they were doing QE on top of that. In the equation, it was zero. It represent, you know, just it didn't it didn't affect the equation either way because they just weren't they weren't involved. It was all these other other things affecting the decision making process. Well, now that's different. And so, yes, I agree, Joe. You know, that cash is a is a viable alternative, uh, but way too much cash cash is not a viable alternative. Uh, if you uh, need to have more than a 4% return in your portfolio to meet your retirement goals, you're going to have to have something in the portfolio that's going to return higher. Yes, Kyle. And let's not forget that monetary inflation is still above 4%. So even if you're making 4.5%, 
in your in in your cash account, and we have inflation right around four and a half, four point six, four point seven, you know, you're still net net zero or a little bit under zero as far as monetary inflation. Because as we've always said on this program, and I've said this to any prospective client, current client. You know, inflation is the silent killer of the value in your portfolio, and you can't confuse return of principal with return of purchasing power. Because remember, your purchasing power has gotten weaker, and I'm sure all of the listeners of the show would say, you're absolutely right. My purchasing power has been weakened over the last couple of years, and that's the case, and you can't forget that. But, see, that's the thing, monetary inflation. You're not going to get your bank statement or your position-traded money market account and say, here is your rate of return, but here is inflation, so here's what you actually netted. Here's what your and real it might rate show, of return. Yeah, what's your real rate of return? It might actually showed you a negative number. And if more statements were received on a monthly basis from brokerage houses that actually account for purchasing power, uh, you know, vis-a-vis, um, monetary inflation, maybe they would start getting a little bit more interested of some of these great values that are out there. And these values are being overlooked because we look at the market breadth and how narrow it is. You know, 90% of the market's being driven by 10 stocks. And I thought we finally started to see a sentiment shift when I saw the futures Sunday, you know, Sunday evening. I thought, oh, here we go. Russell 2000 was up big Sunday evening for the futures, and I saw, oh, here we go. Now we're going to start getting some some love in the value space, which has just been bludgeoned all year, and that's exactly how Monday was turning out, and then it's it's reversed, and on Friday it reversed. Small caps, you know, got taken out. We got the, you know, value sector taken out, but this is all about a proper balance. You have to have participation in these asset classes, which we do. We participate in the small caps. We participate in value. You know, but again, primarily our portfolios are focused on GARP, growth at a reasonable price, leaning a little bit towards value, but we haven't completely eliminated growth. And so if you find yourself as an investor and you're woefully underallocated to stocks, you know, take this opportunity to slowly dollar cost average in. We all feel that a recession is coming. Is it going to be coming at the end of this year? Maybe, maybe not. Into 2024, maybe, maybe not. That's the big unknown. Do we think the recession is going to be deep, dark, and nasty like 0102? No. No. It, uh, we feel it's going to be mild because we still have 10 million unfilled jobs. You are still seeing wage inflation. And even though we saw higher, you know, higher unemployment numbers this past week, there are still plenty of jobs available for people that want to get out there and work, and we still haven't fully recovered all of those jobs from the COVID economic shutdown and people getting their humps off the couch and getting back out there in the workforce. You know, And so I think the better employment picture is going to keep our economy from going into a deep, dark, nasty recession, which I think will also contribute to keeping a little bit of a floor underneath the S&P 500, and giving some support level to the market. Well, let's take our next commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Your Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, 
or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys. You can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll free at 1-800-275-2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the Money Wise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. So in our last segment of the first hour of this weekend's Money Wise program, you're just tuning in we're, again. Last segment, we were talking about just the net negative asset flows into the stock side of the market, whether it's stock mutual funds, stock exchange traded funds, and that's been the case all year. Uh, based on this research report, ended June seventh that I was taking a look at before the show, and so you know, to all of our listeners, if you find yourself with zero stock allocation. You know, I would have to question you why. You know, why are you at a 0% allocation to stock? If you just miss one, two, three, just a handful of the biggest up days of the market in any given year, it could dramatically affect your annualized return of your portfolio for its life. This is why we have always advocated never, ever have an all-in or all-out strategy when it comes to the stock market. It's about a proper balance, asset allocation, active management, and superior security selection that requires homework. And if you don't want to do the homework, then you need to find a competent, registered investment advisor, someone who acts in a fiduciary capacity that only acts in your best interest, not theirs, and not the firm that employs them. And there's only really a true handful of people in the financial service industry that act in a fiduciary capacity. And so you have to do your research. You have to do your work. Yeah, Joe. Well, uh, I'm having flashbacks because Kyle and I both have friends and we both run into situations. We know other advisors where their clients have called in the past. And, and obviously this environment is a little different. And they want to go 100% to cash. And they've instructed their advisors to go 100% to cash. You know how much pressure that puts on your advisor to get you back in the market at the right time? And really what you're doing is you are putting the onus on yourself, making these calls, and you're really kind of the one to blame if you, if you ask your advisor who does not have discretionary authority to do that. And, 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 and Kyle and I were talking about it and like, and, the, and some of them are friends, and I was like, this is what I told my advisor. I said, well, if you're over here, we just don't work with that philosophy. It doesn't work for us at all. Because it, it just all in and all out is never a yeah, strategy that works going forward. It's a strategy. Yeah. It's, not a, it's not a long-term, successful portfolio performance strategy, all in, all out. I, I well, think some, one way to look at some, at some of these statistics also is you have to look at them uh, in a, from a contra point of view, meaning – when you have a piece of negative statistic that that goes on month after month after month after month after month, there's there's a and we and where we have to do a little some additional research is when was the last time that we had this long string of negative outflows from equity uh, funds? And again, these were retail investors, right? And don't not to throw the retail investors under the bus. Would you say that retail investors tend to be more or less emotional than institutional investors? 
Okay. That's a rhetorical question. Obviously, a tad bit more emotional. Probably probably a little bit more emotional. Uh, So that statistic may be indicating a, you know, a low is near. Well, we had the low, you know, from a market statistic point of view from the S&P was last year. That's been October. That's been been the low of this move. October 13th. This phase post the end of the bull market that ended in January, the first trading day of 2022. But I'll give you another statistic. Well, hold on. Let me throw one statistic real quick about this bear market. This has been the second longest bear market. The last one dated back to 1948. So as far as, again, another contra indicator, this is the second longest bear market we've had as far as number of trading days that we haven't seen this 20% retracement going back to 1948. Okay. So I'll throw throw everybody out a little obscure statistic as we're getting here to the the end of the first hour of Money Wise. During the month of May, the S&P 500's 200-day moving average hit a low and then climbed more than 1% off that low. That was a 52-week low that it hit. In the 20 prior times since 1928, when the S&P 500's 200-day moving average rallied 1% or more off of its 52-week low, the index was higher a year later all 20 times with a median gain of 14.4%. Now, The next day after that one year, we could have gone down 10 or 15% in one day. But what the statistic is saying is we're we're in an area that's indicating that the markets are starting to turn back the other way. Now, that doesn't mean that the markets can't just move sideways for a bit. This news that comes out next week, maybe it's not as market-friendly as some expect. And what will happen? The markets will sell off again. And this also doesn't mean in the next 12 months we don't see a 10% corrected right. move. We don't a see a 12% corrected move. Multiple, multiple it could be multiple moves. Multiple corrective moves. But we're talking in a 12-month time period. So we're talking – May 2023 to May 2024. There's a lot of months and a lot of data and a lot of things that can happen over the course of the next 12 months. So we're not trying to sit here and say that the market's going to be going up in a straight line. But, Jeff, that statistic goes back to 1928. Almost 100 years. Almost 100 years of data. And we also know now we're not saying that the Fed is going to be completely done raising interest rates. Again, most likely you're going to be pausing next week. But when you look at the statistics of what the market does six months, 12 months after the Fed has ended their interest rate increasing policy historically, that's also another bullish and positive sign for the market. But again, with all this said, that doesn't mean that us here at Davidson Capital Management are going to our maximum allocation of stocks in the next two weeks. No. Because I will also throw out a statistic that historically, throughout the market's history, June is the worst month for stocks as a singular month. They call it the June swoon. So, But this, again, would be a good time if you're sitting on extremely light allocations to equities or no equity allocations at all to start to slowly dollar cost average 
you know, over weeks, over months to get some exposure because we're still dealing with historically high monetary inflation, even though it's moving in the right direction. But you have to be in it to win it for the long term. So with that, we're coming up to the top of the hour break, so we will take the break, go into the news, and when we come back, we'll be diving into the second hour of this weekend money, this weekend's Money Wise program and continuing with investor education. So stay tuned, and we'll do that after this. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. You Money Wise guys will be back after the news. All opinions expressed by Davidson Capital Management on MoneyWise are solely theirs and are based upon information they consider reliable and is subject to change without notice. You should be aware of the risk in investing in any security or investment strategy discussed on the show. Before acting, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and should seek advice from your own financial or investment advisor. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. I've got my father, John. I'm your host, Kyle Davidson, and we are diving into the second hour of this weekend's Money Wise program. Now, if you'd like to learn more about us here at Davidson Capital Management, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, you can reach us in our Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you have an investment-related question or topic you'd like for us to discuss here on the Money Wise program, you can send all your emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. Now, if you missed the first hour of this weekend's Money Wise program, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Click on the radio show link where you can listen to today's show as well as past Money Wise shows. And you can also subscribe to our iTunes feed by clicking on the blue note in the upper right-hand corner of our homepage. So in our second hour of this weekend's program, again, like to use the second hour to go into investor education. And the topic for this second hour is really a topic that needs to be on an on a rotation each and every month because it is such a critical topic for investors all across the country to learn, understand, and realize when it comes to the point of them selecting an investment professional to work with and what they need to be looking for and how they can research and find out the background and education levels and licensing levels of the investment professional that they're planning on working with. Now, a topic that we have discussed on past Money Wise programs, and I feel like we've been talking about this for years. I think from the beginning of the show. Well, I know that we've talked about this particular subject, again, the differences between a broker, a stockbroker, and a registered investment advisor, but in particular the the research and analysis that the Securities and Exchange Commission is doing when it comes down to the fiduciary standard. Uh, and later on in this hour, I'm going to go into the definition of the fiduciary standard and what stockbrokers, what laws and directions they have to follow working with their clients and what what laws and rules and regulations that registered investment advisors like us here at Davidson Capital Management have to follow, and in particular revolving around this fiduciary standard, because this has been a topic that has been discussed at length really post-financial crisis. Um, And the Dodd-Frank Act, which took effect in 2010, put in uh, an an actual law 
that goes into the ability of the Securities and Exchange Commission to create a uniform fiduciary standard, which has yet to actually take place uh, across the financial service industry. And an article that came out of the Wall Street Journal this past week uh, titled SEC uh, Head Backs Fiduciary Standards for Brokers and Advisors again goes into Mary Jo White, who's the head of the Securities and Exchange Commission, um, you know, really wanting tighter standards uh, for financial advisors who recommend stocks, bonds, and mutual funds to individual investors. And for any longtime listener to this program, they understand that your traditional stockbroker is on the financial sales side of the financial service industry where registered investment advisors like us at Davidson Capital Management are on the asset management side of the industry. Well, let me say something right here, Kyle. The word advisor, I think, confuses the man in the street. In the old days, when I was a broker, we were either a broker or a registered representative. Advisors, financial advisors or investment advisors, by definition, were registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission. What has happened is the word registered representative or broker has been dropped by Wall Street, and they have picked up various terms which they really like to use, whether it's a wealth manager or a they like financial advisor. Financial advisor, but they obviously don't say registered financial advisor because they wouldn't be working for a brokerage firm or registered few. investment advisor. So, so, so you the word advisor confuses the investor in the street. It it, it does, and a, again, I don't. I mean, I, I would hate to say that this is just strictly marketing, but it really comes down it is to marketing. marketing. It it does come down to marketing, and it's to convey the idea to a potential to a prospective client that the powers and abilities of that investment professional are above and beyond what they actually legally can do or what they normally do do with you know when it comes to working with their clients and you know last month the labor department is planning its own set of rules to tighten standards on financial professionals who advise on retirement account investments such as 401ks and of course and Bar- president yes, obama, president obama has endorsed these these we haven't had a president get involved and 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 so he came out several months back talking about wanting to have these new standards and and you know really the department of labor is going and saying well hey we're putting in these new standards securities and exchange commission why don't you put these standards in as well and mary jo white the head of the sec makes it very clear that you know we're two different regulatory agencies and that we have our own processes and procedures that we have to go through in order to put this into place but that she had, she had stated that she has been intensely studying this fiduciary standard regulations and what exactly the Securities and Exchange Commission is going to do. Now, the fact that she's been intensely studying this for just the last few months, I feel like we've been talking about this for years. So why is it just being intensely studied over just the last couple of months? Well, maybe before we put our listeners totally to sleep using these fiduciary words and whatnot, why not give an example of why this should be something our listeners should be listening to? Well, I'm going to have to get to that example after we come back from the commercial break because the the, yeah, the story the no, you didn't check the clock the 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 real world example I'm going to give and and it really could apply to some of our 
a lot of our listeners that are listening right now of what you might run into when it comes to that point in time where you're ready to hop on that horse and ride off into the retirement sunset and you start going out and interviewing investment professionals that you might be planning or, or looking to work with. And as we've always advocated on this show, don't get caught behind the eight ball when it comes time to prepare and plan for your retirement as far as the investment professional that you're going to work with. You need to start the interview process six to eight months out, even 12 months out, just so you get all of your ducks in a row because the last thing we would want to see happen, and we've seen this time and time again talking and working with prospective clients coming into Davidson Capital Management, is that they waited to the last minute, they got thrown a sales pitch at them, that sounded so good to be true, too good to be true, but they signed on that dotted line and wound up getting involved in something that they wound up later regretting because they didn't do their proper due diligence uh, and doing the research it, It's re- research that's required before you hire an investment professional. So when we come back from the commercial break, I'll give you an example of going into the differences between suitability and fiduciary standard, and we'll do that after this. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. You Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, you can reach us in our Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you have an investment-related question or topic you'd like for us to discuss here on the MoneyWise program, you can send all your emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So continuing our investor education, um, and again, I, I know we were talking during commercial break that some of this subject matter might be seen dry and boring, but this hour is so critical for any investor to listen and to learn from to protect themselves, to protect the retirement nest egg that they have worked 30, 35, 40, 45 years to build to not get taken by potentially unscrupulous investment professionals that are looking to make a very large and quick buck and big commission and to understand the rules and regulations that folks follow in the financial service industry and how they vary so greatly between that of your traditional stockbroker versus a registered investment advisor like we are here at Davidson Capital Management. So I wanted to give you a real-world example, and this comes from one of our clients, this real-world example. Um, Several years ago, we had met, I mean, several years, I mean, we're talking six, seven years ago, met with a prospective client who was going to be retiring and had, excuse me, had already retired, had purchased an annuity, very sizable annuity, and the annuity was getting ready to be outside of its surrender penalty period. And they were looking to do something else with it. So they met with us, gave them you know, the, whole, the whole spiel, uh, the whole presentation as we do with any prospective client after we did a, a portfolio review and analysis for this prospective client. And I remember distinctly remembering in the meeting I, I told him, whatever you do, whether you hire us or you hire somebody else, do not buy another annuity. And he said, gotcha. 
Got it. Understand. So this prospective client goes, leaves our office, follow up with them, don't hear back from them. About 16 months later, we get a phone call, and it was this prospective client, and he said, I need to come in and talk to you. Okay, comes in. Before I even round my desk, he says, you're probably wondering why I'm here. I'm like, sure. Why are you here? He said, well, I should have listened to your advice, and I didn't. I'm like, well, what do you mean? He said, well, look, and he hands me his paperwork, and what he had bought was another annuity, a variable annuity. And I asked him why. You know, give me the background as to what you did. He said, I called two stockbrokers in New York City. I called two stockbrokers in the state of Florida. I called a stockbroker in San Antonio, Texas. And all five of these stockbrokers all recommended an annuity to me. And he said, after talking to all five of these different brokers, different offices, at different firms, in different states, he thought to himself, well, if all five of these brokers are recommending annuity, then this is the direction that I need to go. This is what I should be buying because these five folks don't know each other from Adam, and they don't even work for the same firms, but that's what they're recommending. And, of course, when I relayed to the prospective client who then became a client that the reason why they were recommending it is because it pays the highest commission on Wall Street and explained to him round about the six-figure commission that was paid to these brokers, I just about saw his jaw hit the floor. Well, he wanted a guaranteed stream of income. That is what he wanted. It was important to him to have a monthly check. So when he went to these brokers and said, I want a guaranteed stream of income that I know it's coming in, well, the brokers basically have two choices, both of which are suitable for him. Choice number one is an annuity. Whichever insurance company that brokerage firm uses, they will select that annuity. That annuity will pay the most generous commission there is for a broker on Wall Street today, as far as we know. The other choice to provide guaranteed income is a government bond. In fact, it's the only investment, not the annuity, that can truly say say it provides a guaranteed stream of income. The only difference being the income can vary because government bond rates will vary with maturities. For the broker, however, the commission on the same portfolio is about 98, 99% less than what he would be getting personally in the annuity. That is why five different brokers from five different firms in four different states all had the same example. They were both suitable investments, and the broker only has to do what is suitable. And that is the whole point of this second hour is to relay real-world examples of the difference between suitability and fiduciary. And just to kind of go into that, you know, what is a fiduciary? A fiduciary is someone that manages money for the benefit of, of another called a beneficiary. A fiduciary is bound by law to place the interest of its beneficiary first before the fiduciary's own interest. 
Now, stockbrokers also called registered representatives, account executives, financial advisors, wealth managers are not fiduciaries. Even though they have engaged in high-visibility advertising to portray themselves as full-service investment advisors. It's real easy. Ask your stockbroker if he or she holds a Series 7 securities license. If he or she does, then it's, it's probable that they aren't a fiduciary. And you have to understand, a registered investment advisor like we are here at Davidson Capital Management are subject to the Investment Advisor Act of 1940, which makes us a fiduciary. Okay? And it's so, so important. I mean, we cannot stress this enough to understand the difference. In the same example, a choice for us between an annuity and a portfolio of government bonds as a fiduciary, we have to go with the government bonds because that is what is best for the client, not what is suitable, what is best as a fiduciary. And a non-fiduciary stockbroker follows only the suitability standard, which doesn't require a stockbroker to place the interest of their client ahead of their own. Under the non-fiduciary suitability standard, a stockbroker need provide only suitable advice to it, to their clients, even if the stockbroker knows that the advice is not in the client's best interest. A non-fiduciary stockbroker, you know, bottom line, they have a fiduciary duty to their broker-dealer, to who employs them. That is who they have a fiduciary duty to, not their client. And it bl- I, I can tell you, Dad, when I sit down with prospective clients and I tell them that financial salespeople, stockbrokers, are not required by law to put their interests in front of their own, it blows their mind. But what's, a, what's unfortunate is that individual investors don't understand that there is a difference between what registered investment advisors do, what we do here, versus what a broker does. It was the manager at Bayesian Company that I worked for as a manager that led me to become a registered investment advisor. That you worked as a broker for. Yes, I worked as a broker for them. One day I was analyzing the bond market. I was sitting at my desk looking at this chart, that chart, and he came up to me and said, John, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm trying to figure out what the long bond's doing. And he said, we don't pay you to be an analyst. We pay you to sell securities. We're not in the business of analyzing markets, managing money. We're in the business of selling securities. The light went on in my head, and from that day forward, I chose the path of becoming a registered investment advisor. And it all went back to the manager at a brokerage firm and a young broker trying to understand and help his clients. And a registered investment advisor must follow the trust standard, and it's the highest known in law, which requires an RIA, a registered investment advisor, to place the interest of their client ahead of their own to fulfill the critical fiduciary duties of trust and confidence. So, again, that's that trust standard versus the suitability standard. And this is why when you go to the big-name brand broker-dealers, I mean, you can list them off. There's commercials all over the place, all over television, radio, the computer for these, for these firms. You know, you have to understand they're in the job of asset collection, asset harvesting to sell investment products. 
And it's also important when we come back from the bottom of the hour break to, to go into a lot of the proprietary relationships that are in place with your traditional broker-dealers and mutual fund families and other investment product providers to understand. And really, I think what also led a lot of investors to, to have received advice during the financial crisis of staying the course and why that advice came so much so from your traditional broker-dealer or stock brokerage-type firms. And so we'll get into that when we come back from the, from the commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. We'll be back after these words. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, you can reach us in our Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So continuing discussing that critical difference between your traditional stockbroker and a registered investment advisor, um, I wanted to talk briefly about the proprietary relationships that brokerage firms have. Now, prior to joining Davidson Capital Management, I spent a few years uh, as a mutual fund wholesaler where my clients, as a mutual fund wholesaler, were stockbrokers. I sold my company's loaded mutual funds to brokers in the state of Texas because that was part of my territory in the state of Texas. And it's important for investors to understand of these relationships that mutual fund families have with brokerage firms. Um, and every single mutual fund family, you're going to have a mutual fund family that has some great mutual funds, some decent to average mutual funds, and some not-so-good mutual funds. Dogs. Dogs. Poor-performing mutual funds. But a lot of these brokerage offices have very limited shelf space of the mutual fund families that they want really prominently displayed in the office. And sometimes in order to get shelf space, there are marketing fees that are paid and things of that nature. Now again, this was in the late '90s, early 2000s when I did the, you know, when I was a mutual fund wholesaler. Um, it's important to understand that a mutual fund wholesaler's job is to gain a relationship with a broker and to educate them about the mutual funds that are being made available by the fund family and sell them on why they need to be selling these funds to the clients. But it's also important for clients to understand that some mutual fund families have revenue-sharing agreements with brokerage firms where the brokerage firm collects a portion of the management fee being charged by the mutual fund family for those clients' assets to be in there. And really the point I'm working towards is getting back to the financial crisis because when we're meeting with prospective clients after the financial crisis, we always, when we do our portfolio reviews and analysis, I always ask, well, what was the advice and guidance that you were receiving from your investment professional, from your broker during the financial crisis? And 10 out of 10 times, the advice was stay the course. 
and they were the prospective client would question me, you know, why was the advice stay the course? Why wasn't it like let's get a little more liquid, let's let's get some money on the sidelines, let's get some cash on hand? And I really, and again, in, in, in my 17 years of experience, what my mind leads back to is revenue-sharing agreements that brokerage firms have with mutual fund families and other financial product providers that if assets are not in these mutual funds, then there's no revenue to share because there's no management fee being generated by the mutual fund family. So if advice coming from brokers to their clients was let's sell, let's get more liquid, then these brokerage firms could be slicing their own throat and the revenues that they're that, that are being driven that they're being driven off of these mutual fund holdings by their clients at these brokerage firms. So it would have seriously cut into their bottom line if it was let's get out, let's get liquid because now there's no revenue coming from these outside mutual fund families. And it's important for investors to understand. And I can tell you that when we do portfolio reviews and analysis, and particularly there's certain brokerage firms that have affinity, that have a love for very particular mutual fund families. Well, you can basically name a firm, and we will name without even, look, without even looking at the portfolio, not even seeing the portfolio, we could bet the potential client you own one of these funds from a particular fund family just because we've been doing this you know in our 26th year of business and we've reviewed quite a few portfolios in those 26 years we see a pattern we see a trend and because of my inside intimate knowledge of the relationships that mutual fund families have with brokerage firms it's no surprise now Listeners are probably, you know, y'all are probably hearing this on the radio, thinking, "Well, gosh, how can brokerage firms do this? It's suitable. They're in, it's suitable. It's suitable. It's it's suitable. It, it's they're suitable. not violating any rules. They're not violating any laws. That is the whole point of this second hour, is so you understand. There's a great commercial on right now. I love this commercial because it really sums up what we're talking about, and it's these two gentlemen. And he's giving the guidance to the prospective client, and he hands him this giant grain of salt. <laughs> and he hands it to him, and he says, you know, the, we're going to be in this fund, this fund, this fund. And he says, oh, by the way, I get paid a higher commission and higher trailing fees on this because of our proprietary relationship, you know, with these with these funds. And he said, well, you know, shouldn't that be illegal? And he's kind of like... Yeah, I well, no. No, not really. I mean, he kind of has a look like, well, I guess you got a point, but no, it's not illegal, but I'm going to be making higher higher fees off this proprietary relationship that we have with these fun families. And I love that commercial. It's just started playing, so I'm sure our listeners have seen this commercial. Pay attention to it because that is what we are talking about. Well, you know, there's another commercial that the financial consultants are doing in which they hired a DJ in Dallas. And they cleaned him up, got rid of his dreadlocks. He's really a nice-looking guy. Well, no, that's talking about financial planners, and I have a whole other bone to pick about financial planners. Yes, but which I'll get to. But within this, he looks the part. They put him in a he nice. Sounds the part. They put him in a nice office. You know, glass, uh, everything you would want. He's got the columns. He's got the suit. He's smooth talking. We and, and he asked him, "Would you give me the account?" Well, sure, we would. And he said, "Would you like to know what my experience is?" And, and I'm a my, DJ. You know, I'm a DJ, and he shows pictures of him, you know, dancing around. So, uh, you know, again, 
but I think that also comes back to another article, which we're not going to talk about on this weekend show about just the number of don't don't let the number of accolades and awards received by a financial <laughs> professional dazzle you think making you think that they have a higher level of expertise or experience and experience than they actually do because again it's all marketing um but you know I will I do want to talk about uh financial planners before we go to the next break because this is something we've also talked about on the show and Financial planning has has really become a, a really booming industry. And there are designations, a certified financial planner, which is a very difficult designation to get. You have to go through a lot of education, a lot of test taking. It is not easy to do. Plus, you have to have industry experience to get the CFP designation. And we're not taking away from that because it's a very prestigious designation. It is. But... You have to be very, very careful how this potential financial how this financial planner is getting compensated because we have seen situations where financial planners are using this financial planning designation as another marketing tool as a way to sell investment products, as a way to generate commissions. So you have to ask, as the prospective client, how are you getting compensated? Are you fee-only? Are you fee-based financial planner? Or are you selling investment products where you're earning a commission? And you need to ask those questions. And if they're not giving you a straight answer, that is when you slowly get up from the table and you walk away. You, as a prospective client, have the right to ask a straight-up straight question and get a straight-up answer. Ask them, do you have your Series 7? If they have a Series 7, pretty good chance they're compensated on commissions. And that's when with the whole situation with suitability versus the fiduciary standard, if they say, well, I have my 65, which is to be a, a registered investment advisor representative, Without a Series 7 or a Series 6, then they'd be leaning more on the side of fee-only. And, of course, at Davidson Capital Management, we are completely fee-only registered investment advisors, which puts us on the same side of the table as our clients because the more money we make for our clients, the more money we make for ourselves, and vice versa. We are not compensated based on commission. And being a registered investment advisor means that we are fiduciaries. We have to follow the trust standard required by law to put our client's interest in front of our own. But you have to understand these differences when you sit down with a financial professional to understand who you're potentially getting involved in and don't let a lot of letters after their name on the card dazzle you into thinking that they have a level of expertise and knowledge that they may or may not have. You have to vet them out yourself. You have to dig deeper. As I have said, going back to 2005 on this radio show, and you know what we've also talked about on the show is the way that you can look up your investment professional that you're thinking of working with or who you're, or who you are currently working with simply by going to Google, typing in the Google search broker check and that will take you to the FINRA website and FINRA is the regulatory body overseeing the really the financial sales arm of the financial service industry. You type in your broker's name and it will go to their report. 
Now, the one thing to keep in mind, and I've seen this, is that we've seen brokers starting to use middle names or different first names to try to get around potential bad reports. I've noticed this, that they make these name changes so you can't track them down as easily. But you still have that tool available as a prospective client to go in and do research on that investment professional to find out if they have any regulatory issues, any customer complaints, what those complaints are involved, to see if they have any personal bankruptcy or personal financial issues, or if they've had any criminal misdemeanor or felony charges in their lifetime. So utilize the tools that are available. Well, we've got to take our last commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Your Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, you can reach us in our Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So before we went to commercial break, again, spending the second hour of this weekend's MoneyWise program talking about, again, the critical differences between a stockbroker and a registered investment advisor, and, and, and also at the beginning of the hour talking about how the SEC is still in the process of studying to find out whether they're going to hold traditional stockbrokers to the same fiduciary standard as we are held to as a registered investment advisor here at Davidson Capital Management. And I have a feeling this is going to be an ongoing saga that's never going to reach a conclusion um, because, again, I think that this would put a serious uh, dampening on revenues at traditional broker-dealer firms across this country. So I'm definitely not holding my breath. The fact that this that this provision or, or the discussion of adding this provision has been around since the Dodd-Frank Act of 2010, and we're now in 2015, and the head of the SEC, Mary Jo White, has only been intensely studying it for the last few months. I'm not holding my breath no, that anything is going to get done. Going to so what you have to do as an investor, you have to arm yourself with knowledge. That's one reason why we have the Money Wise program and why we're in our 10th year of doing it. But you have to utilize the tools that are available to you. You have to be an educated consumer. And before you sign on that line as dotted, you have to utilize all the, the research capabilities that are available on the Internet. And as we went to the last commercial break, talking about utilizing the FINRA website, which is the regulatory body of broker-dealers, of stockbrokers, and doing what's called a broker check. By Googling, broker check takes you right to the website. You type in your broker's name, and you pull up their permanent record. I always jokingly <laughs> say, you know, in from high school, yeah, in high office. school, you've got your permanent record. Well, in the financial service industry, whether you're a registered investment advisor like we are, or if you're a or if you're a stockbroker, we all have a permanent record called our U4. And it tracks you throughout your entire career. So if you've had run-ins with 
client complaints, customer complaints, and what those complaints are to see that if you've actually gotten sued by a former client and actually had to pay restitution or if the brokerage firm or firm you worked for had to pay restitution. It talks about if you've had any kind of bankruptcies or personal financial uh, issues that is also reported in the U-4 on broker check or if you've had any misdemeanor or felony charges. And, I mean, I know for a fact just from doing my own research that we have an insurance salesman here in town that avoided a potential 10 years in prison on a drug felony charge (laughs) because of illegal search and seizure. I found this on broker check. I found this on broker check. I, I found a, a gentleman here in town, we, a prospective client, was getting ready to hand over over a million dollars of his hard work, his life savings, and this financial professional had filed bankruptcy three separate times. Now, I understand people run into financial difficulties. You know, I'm not making light of that. But if you've run into a situation where you've had to file bankruptcy multiple times and you can't keep your own financial house in order, As a prospective client, I would be a little nervous turning over my life savings to someone who's a financial professional who can't keep their own financial house in order. There's just no reason for people to do this when this is available to them. That's right. And and, and again, you're going to go and and look up financial professionals that have a very clean record, but it's also going to show you what licensing they have going back to this, that if they have a Series 7, that their compensation can come in the form of commissions. So again, knowing that they're on the financial sales side of the business, Um, You know, for us at Davidson Capital Management, having our Series 65 as a registered representative of a registered investment advisory firm, we follow the fiduciary standard that we have to follow as an RIA. I haven't seen numbers. I know once upon a time, I think we quoted there's 15,000 of us. And there's over 300,000 of them. Closer to 400,000. Registered investment advisors is a very small minority in the financial service industry. So you're more often than not going to run into a traditional stockbroker than you are a registered investment advisor. Now, I want to just kind of give this blanket disclosure. You know, we're not using this hour to beat upon brokers. There are a lot of good, hardworking brokers. In fact, one of my friends is a broker that that do right by their client, that do a good job. But you have to understand as an investor what type of an investor you are. If you're the type of an investor that likes to call the shots of what's bought and what's sold in your portfolio and when that occurs, you're best suited to work with a stockbroker. That's really what they're there for. They, You can ask them questions. They can give you some advice and guidance. You can bounce investment ideas off of them. They can give you their personal opinion, and they can process the trades for you. If you're the type of investor that doesn't want to have that control, that wants to turn over the decision-making on a day-to-day basis to the investment professional, then you're best suited to work with a registered investment advisor like a Davidson Capital Management. And you have to understand the brokerage industry over the last 15-plus years, because of the pressure they've been feeling from registered investment advisory firms like us, have developed programs to give you that active asset management from either themselves at the brokerage firm or an outside money management firm that they partner with. 
But you have to understand that your broker is not the person that is making those day-to-day decisions. Your broker is nothing more than the middleman of that transaction. They're getting paid a fee to steer your money to an outside asset manager or to the home office to an asset management group that you will have no relationship with. They won't know you from Adam. And you're paying an extra layer of fees on top to have your broker being nothing more than a mouthpiece in this transaction where instead of working directly with a registered investment advisor like a Davidson Capital Management, you eliminate that extra layer of fees. You go directly to the source and you have that personal relationship with that investment professional who's making those day-to-day decisions with your assets. You can look at them in the white of their eyes when you're working directly with a registered investment advisor. So you have to utilize the tools that are available to you. You have to understand those critical differences between a broker and a registered investment advisor and the differences between what is suitable, what brokers follow, and what registered investment advisors follow as a fiduciary and following that fiduciary standard. And if any of our listeners want more education, do not hesitate to pick up the phone and give us a call at Davidson Capital Management at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And with that, we'd like to thank everyone for listening to this weekend's Money Wise program. For my father, John, this is Kyle Davidson saying have a fantastic weekend. And to your financial health, we will talk to you next week.